Please open your Bibles to the prophecy of Joel, prophet Joel. Tonight's text will be verses 28 through 32. Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. Give ear now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, we give thanks to you for your word. We know that you have given us this word that we might know what it is that we are to believe concerning you and what duty it is that you require of us. Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to understand this vitally important passage and further, help us to understand how to live in light of it for the, for the glory of Christ and the hope of his appearing. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Redeemer, and Friend, the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. The longer one lives in this fallen world, the more jaded one becomes, especially with respect to promises that sound too good to be true. And whether we hear these in an advertisement or tel- on television or have spent uh, undue time recently with the stereotypical used car salesman, we all know what it's like to have someone over-promise and under-deliver. Most commonly, we call those who do this politicians. And this is especially common, I would remind you, in an election year. But the longer we live, the harder it becomes to believe promises no matter who it is that is making them to us, we always want to know, what's the catch? What are they not telling me? In Genesis chapter 15, Abram was struggling with just such a promise. He had been told decades earlier that he would be the father of a line through whom all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And here he stood years later with no children. And so he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord famously takes him outside and says, Look up to heaven, number the stars if you are able, so shall your offspring be. And we know how Abraham responded to that. He believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. Nonetheless, though he believed the Lord, there was still some lingering anxiety on his behalf. As we read, he responds, But, O Lord God, how am I to know? Genesis 15, 8. 
This is very similar to the response that Mary gives to, to the angel Gabriel in Luke's gospel when, when the angel says, you are going to conceive and, and, and give birth to the Messiah. And she says, how will this be? This search for assurance and security is one that has long plagued God's people. We are called to trust the Lord, and so we do, but as we act in faith, there's always this, this lingering sense of insecurity, this lingering sense of anxiety until we know just how is it that the Lord is going to pull this off. That is the situation that the people of Judah are in here at the end of Joel chapter 2. They have sinned grievously in breaking covenant with their faithful God. And now, after Joel's long-standing urging, they have returned to him and sought his grace. And they've been assured that we saw, as we saw in our last passage, that they are people who are pitied, protected, and provided for. They've received all of these promises that one day the, the Lord will be in their midst and they will never be put to shame again. They've received promise of a glorious future. But these people have experienced these temporary revivals before. As we've said many times, we don't know precisely when Joel was written, but there's, there's no doubt that they had, the people of Judah had had kings that promised to restore the kingdom to its glory under David. There can be no doubt that there were priests who promised reform in the temple. And there were certainly prophets who prophesied peace, peace, where there was no peace. And the people of God had been burned by those promises. What was going to make these promises that come from the mouth of the prophet Joel, what was going to make them any different? Well, this time, the revival would be accompanied and sustained by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Many of these promises in Joel chapter 2 will not reach their ultimate fulfillment until the day of the Lord. And so this promise of the Holy Spirit is to, to assure us that these things will surely come to pass that we will be kept secure until that day. Note, not comfortable, but we will be kept secure until that day. This is what the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house made without hands, eternal in the heavens, and he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. And so as we consider the, the, that intention of this passage, we'll do so under two headings. How the Holy Spirit assures us in verses 28 to 29, and then how the Holy Spirit secures us in verses 30 to 32. How the Holy Spirit assures us and how he secures us. And under this first heading, how he assures us, we, we'll see what the Holy Spirit will do, when he will do it, and who he will do it for. Verse 28 of our passage begins on this strong note of assurance. And it shall come to pass. I will pour out my Holy Spirit. It shall. I will. And this word that's translated shall here, it's the, the Hebrew word for to be. It, it's the same word that the Lord uses to describe himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14 saying, I am who I am. One scholar writes that this word is at times used as a title of God with a focus on presence, care, concern, and relationship. In other words, as sure as God is, as sure as God exists, so sure can we be that he intends to pour out his spirit. 
And it is with that level of assurance that he speaks. And this, uh, this pouring out of the Spirit is, of course, a reference to the Holy Spirit. I'm sure you all know that. And I'm sure you also know that there is great confusion in our church today about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. First of all, there's confusion about his personhood. Many people think it's an impersonal force. They would refer to him as an it. That is certainly not the case. He is the third person of the Godhead. He has his own person. But even more confusion is surrounding the work of the Holy Spirit. Lots of people would claim to be spiritual or have some subjective sense of the work of the Spirit. But let us be those who would let the Bible speak as to what the Spirit does objectively. Joel describes the results of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit this way. He says, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Now, this kind of language can make some Reformed Presbyterian types a little bit uncomfortable. Sounds a little charismatic. Sounds a little bit too Pentecostal for our tastes. But it is in the Bible. And we cannot ignore it, but we must rather understand it correctly. Our Pentecostal friends will take this passage and others like it and say, see, this is proof of ongoing revelation. This is proof of ongoing spiritual gifts and taking a plain, limited, surface-level reading of the passage and one similar to it. It's easy to see where one might get that idea. But as one theologian once put it, any biblical text without its historical context is a pretext that's an opportunity falsely taken for a proof text. In the Old Testament context, this speaking of dreams and visions and prophecies, these are means by which God revealed himself to his people. We think of Joseph and his prophetic dreams that he told to his brothers and to his mother and his father. And we think of Joseph again, as well as Daniel, and the interpretation of the dreams of Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar. These were basically authoritative revelations of God of what would surely come to pass. This is how God revealed himself. And the same could be said of visions. Prophets such as Isaiah and Ezekiel introduced their prophecy as a vision. This is what I saw. And then we get 60-some chapters from Isaiah. The author of Hebrews would acknowledge this. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, visions, prophecies, dreams, God spoke to our fathers. And then he brings up a stark contrast. He says, but in these last days, these days which you and I live in, God has spoken with finality. He has spoken by his son. The point then is that what Joel is saying is that to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to have an intimate acquaintance, an intimate knowledge of the revelation of our God. And that is now completed in the scriptures. The apostle John would make the same point in his very famous prologue. He would say that in the coming of the son and his earthly ministry, and by implication, the explanation of that ministry by his apostles and the rest of the New Testament, God has fully been revealed. He speaks with finality. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Or we might render that, he has exegeted him. He has revealed the Father in fullness. What more, I ask, could he say to you than he has said? The revelation of God in the scriptures is complete. And so when we want to hear a prophecy from the Lord, we do it by reading his word and hearing it preached. A dear friend of this congregation, O. Palmer Robertson, put it this way. The very word of God 
now manifests itself exclusively in the completed prophetic scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. The prophetic function of preaching Christ continues to have great significance today. The concentration by Joel exclusively on the gift of prophecy indicates the fundamental character of the verbal communication of the truth of God for the advancement of the rule of God in the world. And lastly, on this point, I would note that our confession of faith gives us some helpful guidance. In chapter 1, paragraph 9, it reads, When there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, it must be searched and known by some other place that speaks more clearly. At best, this, this, uh, this, this, claim, uh, this, this passage speaking of prophecies and dreams and visions is, is unclear as to exactly how that's going to shake out. And this is evidenced by the fact that many Charismatics and Pentecostals all have different ideas by what it means. We actually have a very clear explanation of what will happen when the Holy Spirit is poured out. It just so happens that the one who poured out the Spirit told us exactly what to look for. Jesus taught extensively about the outpouring of the Spirit in John chapters 14 to 16, and he says many things that will come to pass at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He says the Spirit will bring to remembrance the Word of God, John 14, 26. He will bring about spiritual peace, John 14, 27. He will cause us to bear witness about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, John 15, 26 to 27. He'll bring conviction of sin and righteousness. He'll bring conviction of judgment. And lastly, John 16, 13, he will guide us into all truth. And these verses, especially John 14, 26, that he will bring to mind all things that Christ has said, and John 16, 13, that he will lead us into all truth, they, they suggest that we're not looking for new words. We're looking for understanding and remembrance of the words that have been given. That is what we are to expect at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And is this not precisely what the people of Judah needed to be assured of more than anything? They, had, they needed to be assured that God would be kept near to them through his word. The Lord said through the prophet Hosea, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Since you have forgotten the law of God, I will forget you and your children. Surely, this is what had happened to the people of Judah. They had cast the law of God, they had cast the word of God so far from their minds that they did not even recognize the judgment of God when it was plainly before them. Moses and Solomon and others had made plain that the coming of a massive locust plague was a sign of God's judgment for breaking covenant, and the word was so gone from them they didn't even see it. This is what they needed. They needed to be assured that the Spirit would keep them close to God. My friend, I tell you tonight, this is what you need more than anything else. You need to be assured that, that the Lord will be your God to you and to your sons and daughters after you. Is it not the case that when we sing, Come Thou Fount, we all get a, a little lump in our throat when we say the words, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We, we know that within ourselves. But if you have been born again from above, born again by the Holy Spirit, if he has been poured out into your hearts, you can be assured that he has taken your heart and sealed it for his courts above. If we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. But the Holy Spirit has put the right man on our side. And you will not fall away, because as the Lord says through the prophet Ezekiel, 
I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you my spirit. That is what we can expect the Holy Spirit to do when he is poured out. Now, the next question to consider is, when will this pouring out come to pass? We know it's future to Joel's audience, but when? Well, one commentator notes, the language Joel uses suggests the outpouring of the Spirit as a second and later consequence of the gift of the teacher of righteousness. You may recall in our last study, I pointed out that this, this uh, uh, prophecy in verse 23 of the, the, the reign for your vindication could also be rendered a prophecy of the coming teacher of righteousness, a prophecy of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And that this was uh, the expectation of the Jews at that time, connecting it to Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. And it just so happens that after the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus, in a matter of weeks, the Holy Spirit is poured out on his church at Pentecost. The Apostle Peter in Acts 2 uh, says, takes these very words of Joel chapter 2 and, and uses them for his sermon text at the very, first, uh, the very first sermon of the New Testament church. Acts 2 says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And this, of course, caused a great commotion amongst the crowd. And Peter says, don't you see? This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It's really interesting and fascinating to note the grammatical use of this as well, because the Bible makes very plain that the day of Pentecost is the fulfillment of this passage. But that word pour, it's an imperfect verb, which means there, it's, a, it's, a, it's an action that's fulfillment that's, that's yet to be completed. It is, uh, the, the verb occurs either at the time of speaking or in the future, but the conclusion of it is not in view. It's a promise of an action that will start and will be ongoing. To give an example of what I'm talking about that might be a little bit more natural, uh, about 12 years ago, uh, somebody gave me a Bible for the first time, and I set my mind to study the Scriptures. There was a definite point in my life that I began the study of the Scriptures. And in God's grace, that has not ended yet, and I expect it to go on for some time to come. Study, in that sense, is an imperfect verb. That's the same idea of the pouring out of the Spirit here. And this is precisely what we see in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10, 45 says the Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles. Paul would use similar language in Romans 5, 5, suggesting that the Spirit is poured out in our own personal conversion. He says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it's like, it's like a, a heavy rain on a lake that has ripple effects that keep going. And they go down to this very day, even in this hour where we begin our worship service with a prayer of invocation, asking God to bless us in the worship of his name. Who do we expect to do that? The Holy Spirit. We're doing it even now. As as I approach the pulpit, I have adopted the practice of Charles Spurgeon, as have many other Reformed ministers. I believe in the Holy Ghost, and we depend on him to make the means of grace, to make the preaching of his word effectual. There, There are ongoing effects. There's much more that could be said here, but the point is, everything that we do in the worship of God 
is depending upon the work of the Holy Spirit. So if I could say by way of application, remember to pray for the worship of your church. Remember to pray that, that, that the, the, the sermon would be clear and articulate and that, that the lost would be saved and that the saints would be sanctified and growing in holiness. Pray before special services. Pray before the administration of the Lord's Supper. And come with confidence, not in the minister, but in the Spirit who will work through the power of the Word. Now, who is this promise for? Who is this Holy Spirit for? Well, Joel says, uh, the Lord will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Now, all flesh here does not mean all humanity. Rather, Joel is prophesying with respect to the covenant community. Note there's a fourfold use of the word your here. He speaks of your sons, of your daughters, of your old men, of your young men. And this is a huge statement because the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament, but primarily that activity was limited to the anointed leaders of God's people. In Numbers chapter 11, the Lord takes pity on Moses because he is the only prophet amongst the people of Israel. And so the Lord consecrates 70 elders and and gives them that same spirit that he had given Moses. And Moses says in Numbers 11, 29, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And on our passage tonight, the Lord promises, I most certainly will. David Hubbard explains, Upon all flesh shows that the entire people of Israel will participate Whereas the gift of God's Spirit had previously been restricted to chosen leaders like Gideon, the early kings, Saul, David, and the prophet Micah, now all God's people will become prophets and Moses' wish will be fulfilled. What does this mean for us? It means that for the New Testament church, we all have some work to do. Elderly saints may think that their time has passed them by. That is not so. The prophet says, your old men shall dream dreams. We are thankful for the ways in which you have served and led in the past. And in many ways have paved the road, especially in a multi-generational church such as our own. But there is still work to do. You can pray. You can pray fervently for the salvation of covenant children within this body. Pray for the marriages in this church. Pray for the preaching of the word. Remember the example of Epaphras in in Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, of whom Paul says he has struggled on your behalf in prayer. Young children may think that this promise of the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is for them only when they get older. Not so. Your young men shall prophesy, the prophet says. There's ministry for you to do as well. You too can pray regularly for your church. You too can sing God's word. You too can get involved in in ushering and volunteering to clean up on Wednesday night. You can minister to God's people, young person, by sharing with others what you're learning in Sunday school. Share your memory verses. uh, Recite the catechism to those who watch over you. There is ministry for all to do because God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, on all of my people. This is how we are assured that the spirit is at work. 
when the members of the covenant community are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and growing in a desire to minister that grace and knowledge to others. We now turn our attention then from assurance to security. And we must first ask the question, what are we secured from? Well, verses 30 to 31 make that very plain. They speak of the coming judgment of the day of the Lord. The people have seen a a sample of this judgment. They've seen a a foretaste of of the day of the Lord in the locust plague. But this judgment will be on a cosmic scale, the prophet says. He says there will be signs that take place in the heavens and on the earth. And this imagery that he gives us in verse 30, it's meant to strike terror into our hearts. Blood and fire and columns of smoke. These words are allusions to various Old Testament theophanies. A theophany is is an appearance of the presence of God, uh, pre-incarnate. So, for example, when God makes covenant with Abram, as we alluded to in Genesis 15, his presence is symbolized symbolized by a smoking firepot and a flaming torch. And now that God, the living and true God, is coming to bring judgment on all the wicked. We just sang of this not moments ago in Psalm 35. The great and awesome day of the Lord is coming. And only those who are sealed with the Holy Spirit will endure it. And then in verse 31, the imagery hearkens to the plagues of Egypt in Exodus. And this is a a motif that Joel has used uh, a lot of times in this prophecy. He says of these signs in verse 31 that the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. These connect, these are echoes of the plagues on the Egyptians. The eighth plague was the locusts. We've seen that extensively. The ninth plague was darkness. That's prophesied here with the sun turning to darkness. And finally, the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn, the bloodshed of the firstborn, symbolized, some think, by the the moon turning blood red. Others would connect that imagery to the, the turning of the Nile to blood, but whichever way you go, he's referencing the Exodus plagues. The point is that these plagues that once destroyed the most powerful nation on the earth are now coming for the whole of the earth. And it is only those who pass through the waters washed with the regeneration of the Spirit that will be spared. How does one experience this security of the Holy Spirit? How does one uh, arrive at this security over and against that great and awesome day of the Lord? Well, verse 32, our last verse, makes very plain, telling us everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And calling on the name of the Lord means far more than a simple one-time utterance, a a simple one-time saying of the sinner's prayer or anything like that. No, this verb is also an imperfect As we noted earlier, that is to say it has a beginning and it has an ongoing consequence. To call on the name of the Lord is to commune with him regularly in the worship of his name. Douglas Stewart explains to call on the name of Yahweh means not merely to pray to him, but to worship him consistently and exclusively. This is why the text immediately turns to saying, in Mount Zion and Jerusalem shall be those who escape. 
This refers to the dwelling place of God, the the holy city, the place of worship. Now, of course, we know that in the New Covenant era, there is no longer a holy city. And God is to be worshipped everywhere and in all of life. That's true. But I do not think it's a stretch to make the connection from Mount Zion and Jerusalem to the gathered worship of the Lord's people on the Lord's day. People ask all the time, why do I have to be part of a church? Why do I have to serve in the church? Why do I have to attend worship? Because, my friend, that is where those who will be saved will be found. Of course, no one is ever saved by having your names on the rolls. But those who will escape the judgment and wrath of God will be those who worship him. And that is taking place in the local church. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome, and who can endure it? But oh, how sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within her doors. Those who have escaped the day of the Lord will be those who want to be there, gladly welcoming others while there is room. When I was growing up, some of you know my father was not a very big part of my life. But there was an older man who was a friend of our family who took pity on my situation. And he invested heavily in me. And he would take me out regularly to spend time with me and, and just, uh, just look after me. And in his youth, this, this man, he served in the Air Force. And he served during the Korean War. And he flew on a plane called a B-29. And occasionally there would be an air show that would come through town and it would bring a a, a famous older or retired aircraft that you could see and that you could get in and see all the cockpit and what what, what it looked like in there. And and, and Jim would always insist when the B-29 was in town, we had to be there. And he couldn't wait to tell me about where all of the different people on his crew sat and several other details that I confess I don't remember. But the point is, This was 45 years ago for him, and it was still the most exciting thing that had ever happened to him, and he couldn't wait to share it with people who were important to him, people who mattered to him. How much more should that be the case for us as Christians? Being born again by the Spirit of God is the most exciting thing that will ever happen to you. And it should be your chief desire to to share life, to share community with those who have had that same experience. And then to spread that message to others. We should be a people who long to share this good news with those who matter to us. Joel implores the people of Judah to call on the name of the Lord. He implores you tonight to call on the name of the Lord. And it is only fitting, it is only appropriate that we would, having called on him, call others to do the same. And by the way, this is not my application of the verse. This is the application that the Apostle Paul makes in Romans chapter 10 when he quotes this passage in Romans 10, 13. And then he says, how will they call on him in whom they have never heard? And how will they hear unless there is preaching? We should be evangelizing our friends and our family with intentionality, even though it may be uncomfortable and at times difficult. It's the logical conclusion of this text. We should be doing it. There's a famous magician who's also an atheist named Penn Teller. And he once gave an interview. And in the interview, he was speaking about evangelical Christians. And and he said, 
I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell and not getting eternal life, and you think that's not really worth telling them because it would make things socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is a possibility and not tell them? He goes on and says, I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was, was bearing down on you, there's a certain point at which I tackle you. And this is much more important than that. These are the words of a non-believer. And these are words that John Calvin would agree with, as a matter of fact. He says that it would indeed be far better for the reprobate to die a hundred times than always to live and thus sustain eternal death in life itself. We need to be telling others to call on the name of the Lord. We need to be intentional in our relationship with non-believers and seek those opportunities, natural ways to tell them about, about the Lord and, and what he has done. My standard approach is to say to somebody that I know well, look, I love you and I believe the Bible is true. And those things cannot coexist unless I also tell you why you need the Lord Jesus. And they'll give you a hearing because it comes from sincerity and from the heart. Or perhaps you have a, an unbelieving family member who's sharing with you some difficult trial that they're going through. Listen to them. Be patient with them. And then offer to pray with them. I have never had someone turn me down when I say, can I pray with you? And in that prayer, you have the opportunity to speak gospel truth to them right then and there. You say, Lord, I know that it is only because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ that a sinner such as myself can come before your throne with this request. And so I ask that you would bless so-and-so with this request. Answer it in such a way that they would know that you are the living and true God and the only hope of eternal life. Now you may think to yourself, how are words like that going to lead someone to salvation? There's no way someone will come to Jesus through so, something so simple as a prayer like that. And if we're trusting in the power of, of your own words, then you're absolutely right. But what if what the Bible says is true and the Holy Spirit uses prayers to bring about the will of God? I remember the first time that a Christian prayed over me. It was a very powerful, informative experience in my life. I like to think I was already converted in that point, but I'm not sure. But I knew after that that this person cared about me and that her God did too. So I pressed in all the more. Do you ever wonder why it is that you heard the voice of the Lord and others didn't? That, that, that you, you, you heard the same gospel and you accepted and they didn't. Why is that? The answer is at the end of verse 32. Among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. That is to say that those who call upon the name of the Lord are those who were first called by the Lord. It is our duty to proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world, to warn them to flee the wrath that is to come, and so to run to Christ. But we know 
that it is God alone who works through those words to bring light out of darkness, to bring life out of death, to bring into existence things that did not exist. And so, my friends, this night as we begin to conclude, I must ask you, have you received this call? Has God poured out His Spirit and saving grace on you? I'm not asking for a subjective feeling. The Westminster Shorter Catechism gives us very helpful objective categories to work through. Answer 31 says, Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds to the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ as He has freely offered to us in the Gospel. So when I ask, have you received this call? I'm asking, have you experienced a sense of conviction over your sin? Have you seen that Christ alone is the only way of salvation and have you embraced him by faith? That is how you know if the Spirit has been poured out on you because if you have done that, you, you, you have been born again of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul would say the natural person does not accept the things of God. They are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If you understand these things, the vitality of these things, you have been called. The promise of forgiveness and salvation for all who ask is a rich promise. That sinners like you and I could be pardoned of our sin and accepted as righteous because of the perfect obedience and the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ alone. It almost sounds too good to be true. And maybe you ask along with Abram, Oh Lord God, how am I to know that that's for me? The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3.14 that God promised Abraham the Holy Spirit. He writes, In Christ Jesus, that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit. Or perhaps you hear this news and you say, It's it's too good. How how can this be along with Mary? Do you remember what Gabriel said to Mary? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so whatever doubts you may be struggling with tonight about God's love for you, His care, His his willingness to forgive and extend grace, He says to you, come tonight to the Lord Jesus. But more than that, He doesn't tell you to do it by yourself. He leads you to the Lord Jesus by the sending of of the Holy Spirit. And we'll give the Apostle John the last word here tonight. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray. God in heaven, we give thanks to you for your Holy Spirit. The way he assures us of your grace at work in our lives and the way he secures us from judgment that indeed all who come to the Lord Jesus will never be cast out because we are kept by the Holy Spirit. I ask that by the power of your Spirit you would work through my own feeble, lisping, stammering tongue to both bless and keep your people by the power of your word. I ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.